March 27, 2014. Shabazz Napier, star point guard for the University of Connecticut, known as UConn, is questioned by the media prior to the Sweet 16 at Madison Square Garden in New York City. The atmosphere is electric. This will mark the first time in 63 years that both the world's most famous arena and the Big Apple will host NCAA tournament games. While the tournament is at the forefront of most questions, another topic also looms large. The biggest lawsuit in collegiate sports history, O'Bannon versus the NCAA, is set to go to trial in June, and the prospect of student-athletes becoming paid employees is now a widely debated and divisive topic. When asked for his opinion on the subject, Napier shocks the room. It's kind of great, you know, I, I, you know, good for them, you know, at the end of the day, you know, to, some, to certain, point, certain points, you know, we uh, as student athletes, uh, you know, get utilized for what we do so well, and uh, we, we definitely, uh, uh, you know, we're, we're definitely best to get a scholarship to our universities, um, but at the end of the day, that doesn't, that doesn't cover everything, you know, we do have hungry nights that we don't have enough money to get food, and uh, sometimes, you know, needed money is, you know, money is needed, um, so, they are hungry nights that, uh, that I go to bed and uh, I'm starving. So uh, something, you know, something can change, something should change. But if it doesn't, at the end of the day, we've been doing this for so long. So. A Division I athlete at an elite basketball university that brings in tens of millions of dollars in revenue every year goes to bed hungry? The resounding echo of Napier's comments hung in the air as the tournament surged forward. And then, two weeks later, tapped under the hands of Boatwright with five seconds on this most improbable tournament run comes to an end with a UConn championship. The Huskies once again are in basketball heaven. Thrust into the spotlight. Napier's hunger on and off the court made headlines around the world. The NCAA was in the doghouse. From Studio Spaz, in association with the Quinnipiac University Sports Journalism Department, this is Jump Ball, a stark examination of men's college basketball past, present, and future. This is part one, Buyer's Remorse. The NCAA or National Collegiate Athletic Association, has been the main governing body over college sports since 1906, when it was first established as the Intercollegiate Athletic Association of the United States. For everyone who believes that sports and politics should remain separate, they have been irrevocably intertwined in the NCAA since day one. The primary proponent of the organization was none other than Theodore Roosevelt, a huge supporter of American football. After increasing brutality resulted in 37 deaths over a two-year span, many schools dropped the sport. In 1905, 
the 26th president of the United States invited school leaders from Princeton, Harvard, and Yale to the White House in a last-ditch effort to save the game. The meeting resulted in 19 new rules tailored toward safety and a new overarching organization comprised of 68 institutions. This became the foundation of the NCAA. The first 40 years were tumultuous. The organization was headless, governed solely by school administrators with widely differing opinions. Unable to agree on standardized rules and regulations, progress was stagnant. In the absence of unified enforcement, programs exhibited unscrupulous behavior, shamelessly cutting deals with boosters, gamblers, and athletes. Even back then, players were getting paid. In 1951, school administrators appointed Walter Byers, a 29-year-old college dropout turned journalist, as the first executive director of the NCAA. Byers had been working part-time for both the organization and the Big Ten Conference out of a shared headquarters in Chicago. Following a failed attempt to permanently banish seven institutions from the NCAA, the University of Maryland, the Citadel, Virginia Military Institute, Virginia Polytechnic Institute, the University of Virginia, Villanova University, and Boston College, all of whom had confessed to major rules violations, Byers was named the first authoritarian figure in the hopes of establishing greater authority and credibility. However, with little formal experience and no foundation to start from, Byers had to prove himself worthy of his new post. His big break came the following year, when a point-shaving scandal was tied to the reigning national champion University of Kentucky Wildcats, then coached by future Hall of Famer Adolph Rupp. Byers, without true power to discipline, narrowly convinced two Kentucky administrators, A.D. Kerwin and Leo Chamberlain, to cancel the entire 1951-1952 season, an edict later coined a death penalty. This was a huge victory for the NCAA and set the wheels in motion for the highly regimented billion-dollar organization that exists today. Byers also played an instrumental role in the onset of television contracts, initially limiting exposure to a single game of the week and preventing individual schools and conferences from signing their own deals. This was driven by a common misconception that fans would elect to watch games from home rather than in person, negatively impacting revenue. Within a few decades, the dollar signs in front of the TV could no longer be discounted, and as frustrations with the NCAA mounted, 63 top-tier football schools came together to form the College Football Association, or CFA, in 1977 to negotiate separate deals. In 1979, the CFA came to an agreement with NBC, which clashed with the NCAA's efforts to enter a joint agreement with ABC and CBS. When the NCAA attempted to intervene, the universities of Oklahoma and Georgia sued the organization for controlling the market in strict violation of antitrust laws. In 1984, the courts ruled against the NCAA, a decision that was later appealed and upheld by the Supreme Court. Since then, the NCAA has not been involved with football broadcasts. Notwithstanding the ruling, 
the NCAA still maintained negotiating rights for competitions organized and hosted by the organization itself, such as championships. With that, the focus shifted entirely to basketball. Making its inaugural debut in 1939, the original men's basketball tournament featured just eight institutions. Byers was the first to increase the number of participants, doubling the field to 16 in his debut at the helm. Within two years, another six schools were added to the fold. In 2011, the field expanded to its current format that features 68 teams. This growth had nothing to do with the overall growth of Division I, which now had twice as many programs as when Byers first took office. Rather, it was directly related to ballooning broadcast rights. By this time, the NCAA was all in on televised games, and when CBS began covering the tournament in 1982, they agreed to pay $16 million annually for the rights. On April 12, 2016, a week after Villanova defeated the University of North Carolina on a thrilling buzzer beater to win the national championship, CBS, in a partnership with Turner, agreed to a new deal that will pay out $1.1 billion per year starting in 2025. In just two scores and three years, the NCAA and CBS had scored big, with March Madness now valued at $16 million per game. But as the saying goes, more money, more problems. And on September 27, 2017, less than two months before the start of a new season, the college basketball world was rocked by a spectacular scandal. In a stunning report, the FBI announced the arrest of 10 individuals, including four assistant coaches, in conjunction with a two-year investigation that uncovered widespread bribery, money laundering, and jarring corruption. In the months that followed, hundreds of pages of documents were released, implicating at least 20 programs and over 25 current or former athletes. The painstaking probe exposed a sophisticated plot in which several businessmen, under the guise of a fake sports agency called Lloyd Management, incentivized recruits to sign with various programs for which Adidas executives funneled money to coaches, who in turn funneled it to those recruits, in an effort to leverage elite talent. In return, Lloyd Management and Adidas gained future clientele. Except, both had already financed the recruits, making them existing clientele, a violation of NCAA rules. The central figure in the investigation and founder of Lloyd, or Living Out Your Dreams Management, was Christian Dawkins, who told his side of the story in the HBO documentary the scheme, the release of which would have coincided with this year's NCAA tournament before its untimely cancellation. Dawkins insists he never gave any money to coaches. He only directed players to the programs wherein the money was funneled from the apparel sponsor down to the coaching staff and through to the player. Sometimes the money was offered for a guaranteed commitment, and other times it was merely an incentive to commit meaning athletes were metaphorically wined and dined by multiple schools long before they even set foot on a court. According to Dawkins, when undercover FBI agents infiltrated his business, 
they tried to change the model to send money directly to the coaches, which was never the intention. Nevertheless, Dawkins did give money directly to players, and that was his downfall. At some point during the sting, a wiretap placed on Dawkins' phone resulted in damning exchanges between himself, his associates, and several coaches. Here is part of a conversation between Manish Sood, a financial advisor and partner in the business, and Dawkins that shows just how vast the scheme was. I will warn you, there is some strong language. So listen, we're, we're, we're making good progress, but one of the questions I had was, obviously you have relationships with some of the coaches. So can you, how many coaches? I mean, if I, if you want to say how many coaches, I, if I screenshotted you right now, Manish, my call log from today, as far as coaches, I mean, today alone, I've talked to Brooks Carl, I've talked to Book, fucking Ken Johnson, Rick Pitino, Tom Izzo, Greg McDermott. I mean, I talked to 10 coaches today, but I'm going to have to go to Louisville on something probably Friday or Saturday this week because I'm probably going to give Rick a kid who's top 10 in the country. That's my kid. So um, once that happens, and I've already given Rick a kid before, but once that happens, and I feel like I'm going to be able to completely control that program, and I think they're going to be a top two, three team in the country. I mean, Manish, you already know how I am with Arizona. They're, yeah. they're top one team in the country. So I can go to Arizona's practice like I'm going to team. At the University of Louisville, this was the final nail in the coffin for Hall of Fame head coach Rick Pitino. At the time, the institution was still mired in a sex scandal, in which former director of basketball operations Andre McGee solicited escorts for prospective and former players over a five-year period. In light of the new pay-for-play allegations, Bettino was fired on October 18, 2017. Five months later, the NCAA officially stripped the Cardinals of their 2013 national championship, the first vacated title in the history of the sport. Perplexingly, that was the biggest fallout from the entire investigation. Although wiretap recordings revealed conversations with ostensibly reputable head coaches that directly referenced payments to players, none of them have ever been charged. Will Wade, the head coach at Louisiana State University, or LSU, was one of those caught discussing, or more accurately, gloating, about making, quote, strong-ass offers, unquote, to players. He was suspended indefinitely by the university on March 8, 2019. Sean Miller, head coach at the University of Arizona, was also caught, yet adamantly refuted any association to Dawkins. On March 9, 2019, one day after Wade's suspension was announced, Miller took the microphone following a loss on Senior Day, the final home game of the season, and just as he did every year, addressed the sold-out crowd of 15,000 Wildcats fans. But this time, the message seemed much more ominous. There's no place that's more magical than McHale Center. There's no fans in the world that are more loyal. And it's, it is, <clears throat> it has been an amazing honor to coach in McHale Center for the last 10 years. Thank you for everything. He walked off to a standing ovation. Social media lit up, convinced Miller had just coached his final game at Arizona. Months passed. A new season began, 
He was not fired. He was never suspended. He is still at the helm today. Will Wade was reinstated immediately following the postseason, a meager five-game slap on the wrist. He did agree to a modified contract with harsher infraction stipulations, but remains in his same position and has not missed another game. After three years away from the college ranks, Rick Pitino is returning. Back in March, he agreed to a five-year deal to become the next head coach at Iona College. It's worth noting that the Gales, like the Cardinals, are an Adidas school. Coincidence or not? As for Louisville, damage control has been minimal. The program is currently ranked as the second most valuable men's college basketball team, one spot behind rival University of Kentucky. And even though the NCAA brought down the proverbial hammer, their judgment doesn't change the fact that photos, videos, t-shirts, and a plethora of memorabilia celebrating a national championship team are still vaunted everywhere. The game happened, and Louisville won. The outcome, the celebration, the notoriety, the revenue was all real. You can't vacate that. To date, the FBI investigation is still ongoing, but legal repercussions have been limited and punishments, once threatened as years or even decades behind bars, have been lenient. Dawkins received the most severe sentence, 18 months behind bars. Sood was let off without any jail time for his cooperation. Two out of three Adidas associates were handed nine-month sentences, while the third had all his charges dropped. And then there were the coaches. Emmanuel Richardson, known in the industry as Book Richardson, former Arizona assistant, was sentenced to three months, as was former Oklahoma State and South Carolina assistant Lamont Evans. Chuck Person and Tony Bland, former assistants at Auburn and Southern California, or USC, respectively, were mandated community service. When the FBI first went public with their findings, they made a bold statement saying, quote, Today's arrests should serve as a warning to others choosing to conduct business this way in the world of college athletics. We have your playbook. Unquote. U.S. District Judge Louis A. Kaplan, responsible for handing down many of the sentences, similarly said that he wanted to send a, quote, great big warning light to the basketball world, unquote. No further individuals have been arrested. No further allegations have been made. The initial furor has long since dissipated. The NCAA, however, is slowly wading through the punishment phase. Last month, on June 5th, Oklahoma State became the first school sanctioned as a result of the infractions committed by Evans, who was on staff for just one season. The Cowboys were barred from the 2021 postseason, placed on three years probation, including a loss of three scholarships in each of those seasons, and fined $10,000 plus 1% of their operating budget. No players and only three staff members from Evans' brief tenure remain with the team. These penalties are unjustifiable, especially given that Evans finished serving his time long before the institutional verdict was handed down. Worse, the program fully cooperated in the investigation, and no one beyond Evans was ever implicated. I reached out to ESPN analyst Seth Greenberg to get his take on the penalties. 
Yeah, every case is stands on its own. The hardest thing about this whole thing is that look, you can't, you know, there's there's two parts of it. You'll end up punishing young people that had nothing to do with the violations. So I mean, like the the class at o- Oklahoma State had, you know, they they did some good things. Oklahoma State, they 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 reviewed their program. They fired uh, Coach Evans immediately. They uh, they went and made the necessary corrections within that program. Uh, they continued to move forward, and Mike Boynton's done a very, very good job. And there's part of me that says that uh, where 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 the incident needs to hit Oklahoma State is in a pocketbook. Why punish the young kids that are there? Uh, punish you know punish the institution for lack of institutional control and uh, and really hit them hard in the pocketbook. And then part of me says you know like let's face it you know you have rules and rules have consequences if you break them. And uh, if you don't adhere to, you know, uh, the rules, if you don't pay consequences then what's the sense of having rules. So I do think that it, that the NCAA will try to crack down. I think that, you know, whether it's LSU, whether it's Arizona, whether it's other schools, but I am a big believer like NC state, NC state, uh, Kevin Keats is the coach. Now they're investigating Dennis Smith, Dennis Smith, I was recruited by Mark Cradford. They pull staff go. Uh, it's been years and years and years. I, I don't think there's any reason to uh, to punish the current NC State program. I think they do need to punish the institution and 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 levy very heavy fines on the institution uh, because it was their responsibility in the end to make sure that the program was was run, run in a in a manner that was compliance with the NCAA rules. Dennis Smith Jr. was named the ACC Rookie of the Year in his lone season at North Carolina State. He also accepted $43,500 from Christian Dawkins, and another $40,000 funneled through James Gatto during that time, according to unsealed documents from the investigation. Gatto, then the director of global sports marketing for Adidas, was one of the ten arrested in the sting. Adidas was, and still is, the sportswear provider for Wolfpack Athletics. Greenberg's colleague Jay Billas didn't mince words in a tweet responding to the Cowboys' penalties that read, quote, Typical. Screw the players that had absolutely nothing to do with an assistant coach violating his ethics. Absurd overkill. The players were victims of the ethical violation. Now re-victimized. End quote. He's not wrong. Too often, innocent athletes are punished for crimes they didn't commit, for crimes that occurred before they joined the program. For the NCAA, it's all about asserting dominance and maintaining control. As long as they remain in control, the broken system remains intact. Through all the flack, all the outspoken grievances, all the lawsuits, the NCAA is still in control. Greenberg's approach to really hit them hard in the pocketbook could work, but what would that look like? For Oklahoma State, the $10,000 fine plus 1% of the men's basketball operating budget, which in 2019 was just under $7 million, puts the total right around $80,000. If it costs $40 for a seat in Gallagher-Iba Arena, that equates to 2,000 tickets, or 15% of one game. That's like getting a splinter. It's painful at first, then gone moments later. To be inhibitive, a fine would have to be much more substantial. Here's the problem. 
The NCAA is inherently governed by its institutions, and every penny it makes is on the back of those institutions. Together, they have colluded to protect each other. It is not shaped this way in the media, but money speaks louder than words. This was not lost on Walter Byers, who became one of the organization's biggest muckrackers. The man who laid the groundwork for the now indecorously powerful governing body and spent his entire 33-year career as its primary enforcer suddenly became its most fervent opposer. Byers didn't enjoy the limelight. He never so much as attended a single NCAA tournament game. But in a rare moment at the 1994 Kansas City Sports Commission's annual gala, just six years after stepping away from his command post, Byers spoke. Presented with an award for, quote, exceptional contribution to amateur sports, unquote, Byers calmly and eloquently bashed the concept. Each generation of young persons come along and all they ask is, coach, give me a chance, I can do it. And it's a disservice to these young people that the management of intercollegiate athletics stays in place committed to an outmoded code of amateurism. And I attribute that to, quite frankly, to the neo-plantation mentality that exists on the campuses of our country and in the conference offices and in the NCAA. The coach owns the athlete's feet, the college owns the athlete's body, and the athlete's mind is supposed to comprehend a rule book that I challenge Dave Burst, who's sitting down in this audience, to explain in rational terms to you inside of eight hours. All of this is not fair, and I predict that the amateur code now, based on a foregone philosophy and held in place for sheer economic purposes, will not long stand the test of the law. Dave Burst was the NCAA Director of Enforcement at the time, and later served as Vice President of Division I Governance, retiring in 2015. Frankly, I'm not convinced that he, nor anyone else, could explain the rulebook given a week. This wouldn't be the last time Byers would make his voice heard. The following year, he pushed his narrative a step further, publishing a book titled Unsportsmanlike Conduct, Exploiting College Athletes. In it, he criticizes the fallacy of both the NCAA and its public institutions being classified as nonprofit organizations, and acknowledges academic exploitation, racial insensitivity, and rampant cheating. In closing, Byers urges Congress to, quote, free the athletes, unquote. Unfortunately, neither his speech nor his book gained much traction, and Byers' legacy was all but erased. Walter Byers died in 2015 at the age of 93. He wasn't strong enough to dismantle his own creation. Neither was the FBI. So what would it take for the NCAA to come apart at the seams? The answer? A shoe. Next time on Jump Ball. Slipping and in.
injured is Zion Williamson. His shoe blew apart. To say that they are allowing an athlete to profit off their name, image, and likeness is somewhat problematic from the start because you can't allow someone the right to their own face and name. NIL will not impact the number of players people think because there are very few people that move the needle. Well, that is another example of how the NCAA has formed this conversation. That's, that is 100% incorrect. Jump Ball is written and produced by me, Steve Zacco. Our music is composed by Hayden Olmsted. Special thanks to Molly Anity for editing and providing invaluable feedback. For more on this episode, please check out our website at jumpballpodcast.org. Jump Ball is a production of Studio Spaz.